0: Hello, and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the love of Jesus to transform people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, and I am bringing you an episode today about mental health and the church. I subscribe to a newsletter from a a Christian magazine and website called Relevant. And Relevant is this magazine and news... Website uh, aimed at Christian millennials and Gen Z, so it has kind of a um, more modern, more uh, younger aesthetic, and it tries to focus on and address topics that are especially relevant to younger Christians. You know, and by younger Christians, you know, we mean people forty and under at this point, because you know millennials are getting pretty up there in age. So um, they recently in their newsletter uh, had couple of articles about mental health. And when I say their newsletter in these articles, I'm talking about, you know, these are their top five most popular articles from our website this week or this day. Um, and, and so when I see multiple days of emails from Relevant, this magazine aimed at you know millennial and Gen Z Christians, where their most popular articles for the day are about mental health, That kind of led me to say, you know, maybe it's a good time to record a podcast about mental health and Christians in the church. So I want to start by uh, sharing some statistics. Um, According to the National Alliance for Mental Health, one in five U.S. adults experienced a mental illness during the COVID-19 pandemic during 2020. there's no secret, of course, that COVID-19 made a significant impact on everyone's mental health, um, and so there, it's careful to we need to be careful to distinguish between saying, "Yeah, my mental health took a toll because I was more stressed than usual," versus you know the one in five who could be described as experiencing a mental illness. You know where this stress is debilitating; um, it inhibits their ability to function day to day. Um, and then there are, you know, one in 20, uh, who experienced a serious mental illness. So, you know, we're talking maybe clinical depression where, you know, for six months straight, you can't hardly get out of bed. Um, and you, and you can't function, um, on the most basic of levels or, um, maybe debilitating anxiety where, you know, you're afraid to even leave the house or maybe, um, not just afraid to leave the house but you will not leave the house you know yeah people can't pull you and drag you out of there um and according to the the national alliance for mental health um one in 15 experience both substance use disorder so they're abusing alcohol or drugs um, maybe as a self-medicating thing and a mental illness together so um and then also 12 plus million people they estimate had serious thoughts of suicide so um, there's this massive mental health epidemic that was already well in progress before COVID-19 and then COVID-19 just threw gasoline on the fire Um, and among U.S. adults in 2020 who sought mental health services um, almost 18 million of them experienced delays or cancellations in appointments Um, Over 7 million of them experienced delays in getting prescriptions and almost 5 million were just unable to access the care they needed at all. Um, So we have this confluence of bad things. One is mental health issues and then the other is a lack of care or available care for people with those issues. So those statistics were for all U.S. adults in 2020 but the situation gets really dire when we hone in on Gen Z or people about age 25 and under so among us young adults aged 18 to 25 in 2020 one in 3 one in 3 reported experiencing a mental illness one in 10 experienced a serious mental illness and almost 4 million had serious thoughts of suicide so it, you, it's tempting to say, well, man, that COVID-19 pandemic really had some adversity for these young people who maybe hadn't experienced a lot of adversity at that point in their life. But uh, one, in, according to the same organization, the National Alliance for Mental Health, one in five young people report that the pandemic had a significant negative impact on their mental health. So one in three, of U.S. adults 18 to 25 experienced a mental illness in 2020. But one in five of those people reported that the pandemic had a significant negative impact on their mental health. So let's think about that. Um, About, there's a gap there, right? So we already had a mental health crisis um, among young adults before the pandemic. The pandemic just made it a little worse for some people. Um, about half of the young people with mental health concerns you know, already reported a significant impact. So the other half <laughs> already were experiencing this and we're going to experience this regardless of the pandemic. So we can't just blame the pandemic for everything uh, when it comes to mental health. It made things worse, but it wasn't the cause of mental health issues particularly among younger people and i teach a lot of gen z and i can attest that they are much much more likely to tell me i'm struggling with my mental health right now i'm having a lot of mental health issues right now and i have learned that i think they don't mean by that what i would mean by that right my generation i'm an older millennial um and even my generation or my end of the generation, we have a stigma around mental health. You know, I have done work with counselors and therapists throughout my life, but only in the last few years have I become comfortable sharing that with people. And it's still not something I'm going to lead with in a conversation. You know, it's not something I'm super comfortable talking about and sharing. Um, and so I'm very much aware that for most US adults, There's this stigma associated with mental health issues and seeking mental health care. That stigma does not seem to exist for younger adults aged 18 to 25 right now. They are, they just don't have that stigma. They have normalized expressing their mental health issues and needs and seeking care for it or seeking self-care for it. Um, Like I said earlier, you know, the healthcare um for mental health is really insufficient right now you know the um the mental health counselors at my university where i teach are overwhelmed and have been for many years actually prior to the pandemic and then especially during the pandemic they're overwhelmed they have they are booked solid with appointments for weeks out um and so if you need an appointment like right now um unless you are walking in and saying, I might kill myself today if I don't talk to someone, then they're gonna bump whoever they're supposed to talk to and bring that person in. But short of that, they, uh, you might wait weeks and weeks or months to get an appointment with a free counselor through the university. Um, so then your options are, okay, now I have to go out and find a counselor, um, which is easier said than done for someone who's functioning perfectly well. It's are harder for someone who maybe is struggling with mental health issues, and especially serious mental health issues. You know that clinical depression of six months or longer that I cannot get out of bed, um, or that crippling anxiety where, like, I, you know, am in tears and breaking down at the thought of even um, facing this thing that causes me anxiety. And in my view, this is a very good development that Gen Z is so willing to admit that I'm struggling with my mental health and to seek care for it. It's not so great that the supply or for the demand for mental care, mental health care has not caught up and probably won't for a long time. Um, it's easy to say, oh, okay, well, if there's not this stigma, well then, you know, it's not really that things are worse in terms of um, the mental health environment it's just that people are more willing to report about it, you know. So we've always had one in three young adults experiencing mental illness or mental health care health issues. They just were quiet about it. They kept it to themselves. Um, I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that's a cop out. Um, I don't think one in three young adults experienced mental health in prior generations. Uh, And I think there are a lot of complex reasons for why young people today are uh, particularly vulnerable to mental health issues. And I think there are a lot of the same reasons why one in five US adults overall experienced a mental health issue in 2020. um, And that many of those people were experiencing them before the pandemic, were going to experience them even if the pandemic never happened. Um, and we'll continue experiencing it long after the pandemic ends. Um, our society right now is very stressful, <laughs> um, just to put it succinctly. You know, you think about it this way. You um, are told your whole life, you got to go to college and get a good job. If you don't go to college, you're not going to get a good job. So you have to go to college. You have to do it. You have to get a good do that if you want to get a good job well you have to get into a good college so you need to do really well in school um, so every test is really important every class every grade is really important because you know if you don't get a good grade on this test then maybe that will keep you from getting an a in the course for the semester and that might keep you from getting an a for the course for the whole year which then might mess up your gpa when as a high school graduate Um, which then may affect your standing in college applications. So then you may not get into the college you wanna get into or a good college, then you're not gonna get a job. Um, Oh, by the way, you also have to have a lot of extracurriculars throughout your uh, school years to try to show that you're well-rounded. You need to volunteer a lot in the community, you need to play some sports, you need to do band or art or all of the above. Um, You need to be actively involved in student organizations. And uh, and then once you're in college, right, you've got to really buckle down and study and you've got to network and make connections and get your degree. Um, so you, you have this immense pressure on young people. And I think this really started with my generation. Um, but you have that pressure for now a couple decades on young people to just relentlessly, constantly self-optimize, to constantly, relentlessly, push themselves to, um, maximize their economic competitiveness. And so they're doing, they have all this pressure on themselves to do that. Um, and then they get out in the world and they are, um, struck with a lot of realities. One reality being that, um, our economy has bifurcated in a lot of ways income inequality is so extreme you know the wealthiest 1% control so much wealth the 99% are then fighting over a increasingly small share of the pie and you could say well that 1% they worked really hard to get where they are yes i'm sure they did they also don't uh, wouldn't get where they are without all the workers in their companies and those workers who are well educated thanks to our public education system and our public universities and who are able to get to work consistently and safely because of our public infrastructure like roads and internet uh, broadband and all kinds you know you can name all kinds of different infrastructure provided by society and government as a whole to enable Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg to have this incredible wealth um and And so we as a society have made this choice without seemingly realizing it, um, that we're going to allow most people to find themselves in a very precarious situation. You have to go to college, you have to do it to get a good job. Um, So even if you have to take out, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, $100,000 in loans to go to college, you gotta do it. And so now people are graduating with debt that was equal to the uh, you know, a really nice house 30, 40 years ago to a really nice starter house for young people 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now people are graduating with that kind of student debt that they then have to pay back before they could even afford some kind of starter house. And the real estate market right now is just crazy bananas. Um, and so that you know, that idea of owning a house is just a laughable Thought for many young people today, probably, um, and so you you have this massive student debt that was was equivalent to the only debt that young people had a couple generations ago, which, you know, the starter home, and now they've got that debt before they can even think about getting the debt for a starter home. Um, they've got maybe debt to get a vehicle, and they're struggling, you know, to get a, a decent paying job in the in our economy because we have hollowed out the middle class so much. Um, You know, there are tons of retail jobs and um, service sector jobs, but there aren't as many decent paying, well-paying other kinds of jobs. And those retail jobs and service sector jobs could pay better if the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musks, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the one percenters of the world had more of what the 1% seemed to have back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and that is a recognition that, you know, I'm not making, I'm not building the Teslas in the factory. I'm not <laughs> writing the code for um, this part of, you know, Facebook's algorithm or newsfeed today. I'm not, you know, going out and pitching p- companies on buying ads on Facebook. Um, I'm not doing a lot of the work that my army of employees are doing that's producing the wealth that I enjoy, maybe I should pay my employees better. <laughs> maybe I should ensure that I have happy, productive, well-paid employees, well-compensated employees, and not work them to death. Because if I um, you know, if someone's working 80 hours a week, doesn't matter how much I pay them, at some point that's unsustainable. And maybe I need to hire a second person. So I now have two people working 40 hours a week. Um, That there seems like, you know, I wasn't alive in the fifties and sixties, but just, you know, reading history, learning history, it sure seems like um, people, you know, the 1% back then, you know, the factory owners, the business owners, the uh, tight, the captains of industry, you might say, seem to have kind of this social uh, awareness that, you know, I owe something back to my workers because without them, I wouldn't be where I am. I owe something back to society because without society um, creating this educated, healthy, um, well cared for workforce, I wouldn't be where I am. And that seems to have gotten lost. At some point, um, big businesses and business owners seem to decide, you know, all I, re- my only responsibility is to my shareholders. My only responsibility, my only goal is to increase the value of stocks and stock returns, and dividend returns for my shareholders. So if that's your primary responsibility and primary goal, well then, okay, I'm gonna pay my workers as little as I can to, you know, as little as I can before they quit, or, you know, as little as I can, that they can still survive and you know, show up to work the next day, with, you know, enough calories uh, in their bodies to you know be able to think and work the day. Um, I'm gonna pay them as little as I can, and I'm gonna work them as much as I can. So then we have the development of the always on work culture, the development of, you know, an email and cell phones and smartphones just threw a heap load of gasoline onto that. Um, so that we have this culture of, you know, working, way more than 40 hours a week um and working nights at home working on the weekends trying to catch up on things um, that you couldn't deal with during the work day because you were too busy answering email or attending meetings um and so we have this always on work culture where we're just always working um and all of that in our society I believe, is a big reason why one in three young adults have mental health issues. <laughs> you put all this pressure on yourself your whole life to relentlessly self-optimize and relentlessly improve your economic competitiveness. And then you get out in the economy and you find yourself working a fairly crummy job for fairly crummy pay. Um, and you're like, man, I, uh, I thought that I was more self optimized, more competitive than this. Um, I guess I need to just keep working harder and harder and harder. <laughs> and I keep, I need to, you know, keep doing more and more and more. Um, and if you do have a good job or a decent job, you maybe feel yourself, feel compelled to take on more and more responsibilities. You know, your business fires somebody and now their responsibilities becomes your responsibilities and you're happy to take them on because you don't want to get fired too. So, um, no wonder one in three young adults had mental health issues in 2020. Um, and no wonder, you know, most of them were going to have those issues regardless of the pandemic. The pandemic just made it a little worse for some of those people. I am a good example of everything I just described. You know, I teach at a university and I love what I do, but I'm literally doing the work of three or four people. Um, I just got back from an academic conference and uh, with a colleague and my colleague is the assessment coordinator for the university and she teaches as a professor and she serves on several different committees. I'm the general education coordinator for the university and I teach several classes and I serve on several committees. Um, And some of the committees I serve on, I will say could each of them could be a full-time position in its own right. Um, so I'm doing, you know, in the gen ed coordinator position could be a full-time position. My colleague's assessment coordinator position should be a full-time position. You know, we went to this conference and we were talking to people and when they found out, wait, you're an assessment coordinator for your whole university and you're still teaching. That's insane. You shouldn't be doing that. You have to have a full-time position in the assessment coordinator role. Um, and you're you don't? You only get like one course release, so you get to teach one less class than you normally would, but you're still teaching. That that's nuts. And we were like, Yeah, we know, <laughs> but this is our reality, this is our situation. But what I've experienced is that at a certain point it all starts to uh become kind of overwhelming. And, you know, I'm I consider myself very lucky, very fortunate to have the job that I have, to have the income that I have. Um And so now, so I have a lot of empathy for, you know, the person who is juggling two or three different balls. Uh, You know, they've got, they're trying to go to school and get a college degree to become more economically competitive. In the meantime, they've got two part-time jobs and um, they've got family obligations and things like that. Um, I have a lot of empathy for those people who have that kind of um, situation and don't have the income that I have and enjoy they're, you know, kind of struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to meet their basic needs. (sighs) So, it's a lot. So, what can the church do, right? What can we as Christians do to try to help address this issue of mental health? Um, Well, Diana Butler Bass, a popular theologian and historian. She's written a lot of great books and I highly recommend you sign up for her email newsletter, The Cottage. Diana Butler Bass uh, said in one of those cottage emails that uh, when church, a small church asked her, what do we do to reach out to young people? She said, we'll provide them with uh, free health care she or free health insurance they thought she was joking she's like no seriously like you can meet their material needs um and they will reciprocate by uh, happily joining and being your most committed most devoted members um and uh, they i don't think they took her suggestion right um so one thing churches could do is they could if they're able if they have the resources try to provide some Financial support or mental health care support, even something as simple as, you know, hey, we'll watch your kid while you go to your doctor's appointment or your therapist appointment. You know, even something as simple as free child care could be a huge help to a lot of younger people. Or, you know, free financial advice and seminars could be a huge help to people. Um, or maybe even, you know, some effort to try to subsidize housing. You know, I mean, why is it that there's so few affordable housing units? You know, maybe a, a church that has some resources and, more importantly, has maybe some people who are expert builders, um, you know, expert construction type people, uh, could um, maybe help partner together with Habitat for Humanity or partner you know, together with other churches or maybe band together with those younger millennials. And let's maybe build some small, affordable houses. Um, you know, I'm a younger, you know, Gen Z person, and I just got my first job, and I've got some income. Um, but I, I have the income for like a thousand foot square house or a fifteen hundred square foot house, not the four thousand foot, um, you know, large houses that seem to be all the only thing anyone builds anymore. Um, Well, I can provide the money, you know, maybe there are some people in our churches who can provide the expertise in in construction. Um, So those are just, you know, a couple ideas off the top of my head. I wanna transition then into sharing um, some suggestions from a couple of those relevant articles. So I, again, I got these emails from Relevant and said, here are our top five most popular articles today. And multiple days in a row, uh, there were articles about mental health, which inspired me to record this episode. Um, so one of the uh, uh, articles is called Five Ways, Five Ways to Actually Create a Healing Space for Mental Health in the Church. So, you know, a big part of mental health is, like I said, that stigma attached to it. You're not supposed to admit when you're struggling with mental health or mental because that's a sign of weakness. That's a sign that you're not tough enough. You can't hack it. Um, And we need to, I think, actively create an environment and a culture where that stigma does not exist, but rather um, people feel comfortable and confident in coming forward and saying, you know, I'm really struggling with my mental health right now. I'm really having a hard time. You know, with one in five U.S. adults experiencing mental illness in a given year, and one in three young adults experiencing mental illness in a given year, you better believe that there are people in your church, in your congregation, who are experiencing mental health issues, who have ongoing mental health issues. You know, this you are not immune to it because you're a Christian. And in some situations your faith your Christianity might make you more likely to experience a mental health issue. Just one quick example, you know, you have a family member who is sick, you pray for that person's healing, but they aren't healed. They pass away anyway. I mean, that could create a real crisis of mental health. Did I not pray hard enough? Was I not faithful enough as I gave those prayers? Um, you know, what was it? fault that this happened? Should I have prayed with more faithfulness? Should I have prayed more often, more frequently? And of course, the truth is that that is not how God works. Um, Like I describe in the uh, episode about open and relational theology, you know, God can't necessarily single-handedly heal this person, and God isn't demanding that you pray, um, you know, 28 times instead of 27 times, God is not petty like that, in my opinion, in my view. And even if we disagree about open and relational theology, I would hope that we all agree that God is not petty. That God, that person was not healed um, because you didn't pray enough, right? Or that, or that your faithfulness was not strong enough. It's not your fault. And yet certain teachings in Christianity and certain attitudes prevalent in the church can make someone feel like maybe uh, someone not being healed was in fact their fault. So, you know, we're not immune as Christians from mental health issues. And in fact, um, we may even be more prone to mental health issues in some situations, in some cases. So as Christians, you know, I think we're called to care for one another. Um, you know, in Galatians 6, two, it says that the, in the church, we're supposed to share one another's burdens. In Philippians 2, 4, we're to care for the interests of others. In 1 uh, Thessalonians, Isaiah, Romans, each of those books tell us to encourage the disheartened and help restore those who are weak. So um, we of course, have the hope in Christ, but we're also called to bring God's will down to earth, right? God, Jesus taught us to pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so maybe we can bring a little bit of heaven down here um, and not just you know have this escape mindset well we've got heaven we've got the resurrection so who cares what happens here maybe we can bring some heaven down here and enact god's will on earth as it is in heaven so here are five suggestions from this relevant article by um Brittany moser um, so this is called five ways to actually create a healing space for mental health in the church by britney moser so one way is to be mindful of the attitude we're creating around mental illness with our words so instead of having kind of a uh, savior complex like oh you're struggling with mental health i'm gonna save you (laughs) you know and instead of like jumping into black and white answers like we'll just pray more um instead you know we need to be become more comfortable sitting with complex Issues and challenges people are experiencing. Things that we don't fully understand, that don't have quick, easy solutions and resolutions. Um, the truth is that when someone says to us, I'm struggling with mental health, we may get very uncomfortable. We may get, you know, what do I do with that? I don't know. And so we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and we have to um, create an environment and attitude. Um, where people have um, comfort admitting mental health issues, and if they come forward and share that and talk about that, that we don't jump in with a savior mindset or a black and white mindset, looking for quick solutions. Um, second, we could have churches could have leadership or laypersons trained in mental health and suicide prevention. Um, so there are a lot of organizations out there that provide information and educational trainings and curriculum online. Um, So maybe find those and train pastors or staff or lay people in the congregation about mental health. Um, We could have a mini conference about mental health. We could have trusted medical professionals um, from the community or from some of these mental health focused organizations come share their knowledge and come educate people. You have q and A Q&A session among the congregation as part of that event. Um, you could see if some of those mental health professionals or trained people in your local congregation or community would be willing to, you know, facilitate a support group for people who are experiencing mental health issues or for the mem- family members of those people. Um, and lastly, you could have a list of resources prepared and on hand so that when people say, you know, I'm experiencing mental health issues, right? You know, I'm having a lot of uh, suicidal thoughts, then you can direct them to counseling or therapy or other resources, you know, suicide prevention hotlines, things like that. Um, just So having those, um, having those resources on hand can be a really effective, simple way that church could try to Create a welcoming, safe environment for mental health in their congregations. Um, So again, that article is five ways to actually create a healing space for mental health in the church, and that's uh, by Brittany Moses at RelevantMagazine.com. If you want to check out that full article, Um, a second um, article from Relevant.com or RelevantMagazine.com, how you can really help someone struggling in mental health. This is by Matt Connor. So how? You Can Really Help Someone Struggling in Mental Health by Matt Connor, on Relevant Magazine, relevantmagazine.com. So this art essay he writes is deeply personal. He talks about his own struggles with mental health. And he says that often, you know, when people mention their mental health concerns or challenges, other people will give well-intentioned advice like, well, come talk to me. Let me know if you need anything. You're not alone. You know, Reach out. Um, and those are all really well-intentioned. Um, and Connor writes, a person in their right mind would hear a phrase like, call me if you need anything, and would respond with a phone call, confessing their negative thoughts and destructive activities and asking for help. But someone in their right mind wouldn't exactly need help with their mental state in the first place. So, uh, Connor writes, Here's what I remember from the shadow side of my life. I was physically, mentally, and emotionally unable to call you in case I needed something. From the outside looking in, the answers look simple. But therein is the issue. When you're inside, everything is distorted. Everything. So, what he's saying here is that... if you are uh, stressed or anxious but generally coping with the challenges of modern life and american society um, and someone comes to you and or shares with you that they're struggling with their mental health that their stress and anxiety is becoming difficult to manage or that they're even maybe um having clinical depression or suicidal thoughts you may say, "Oh my gosh, I am so sorry to hear that. And you know, how can I help? And what what do we need to do to, to get you some uh, get you hooked up with a counselor or a therapist? And you know, call me if you need anything." So we jump in with you know all of these action items. But as Matt Connors shares, you know, in his mental state, he was not able to act. He wasn't able to take the actions that people would jump in and say, you know, let's do this, let's do that. Um, You know, I shared at the beginning of this podcast, some of the statistics about how many people have delays in getting an appointment with a counselor or therapist, you know, it might take weeks or months to get in to see someone. And then once you see them, you know, does insurance cover it? How much does insurance cover? Can I even afford this? There are a lot of barriers to acting to get Therapy or counseling. Um, and those barriers are tough for people who are in a good mental state. Now imagine the people who are in a bad mental state. You know, like Connor says, I was physically, mentally, and emotionally unable to call you in case I needed something. So we tend to say, okay, call me if you need anything. But the people we say that to can't. <laughs> They're not able to call us if they need anything. Um, so then Matt Connor continues and he says there's only one reason i am standing on the outside of mental illness again i had a friend who knew that everything was distorted and he entered into it anyway he knew the circumstances of my life were less than ideal and he'd also noticed that i had withdrawn to be honest i'm not even sure he knew what he was doing he certainly didn't have all the answers it's not that he was trained for such emergencies he was simply willing to enter into a situation he didn't understand And he remained present long enough to lead me to some real help. So this is really interesting, I think, that he is crediting this friend for entering into the messiness of his mental health situation without really knowing what to do or how to do it, without having all the answers. But he just entered into it and he was present and he was able to help figure it out. Um, and so, I really think this article is a great uh, example for what we as Christians should try to do to promote positive mental health. When we notice the warning signs of mental health issues, we can enter into that person's life. So, it's not just, hey, call me if you need anything, but it's maybe like showing up at their door and saying, what do you need? Or, you know, hey, it looks like you need. You know some groceries. So here's some groceries, um, or hey, let's talk. What's going on? Not let me know if you want to talk, but no, we're going to talk. You know, um, and so getting into the situation, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you don't understand it, and trying your best to try to figure it out and help it, not as a savior, not as I have the answers and you just do X, Y, and Z. Um, I've certainly been guilty of approaching people like that in the past, and it does not work well, <laughs> but rather just entering into it. It's like, okay, um, it seems like you could use this. It seems like you could use that or, Hey, I, I can, I will help you figure out the insurance for your, uh, counselor for a therapist. Like, and, uh, oh, you're telling me you don't need this. You don't need that. You actually need something else. Okay. Let's do that instead. You know, so it's more of a, a humble, Approach a collaborative approach. I think is what Matt Connor is saying. His friend did, and what I think probably would work a lot better than coming in as the savior who you know just do steps one through five. of what I say, and this will all be better. You know, I'll share the concluding paragraph from this article uh, by Matt Connor. Again, the title of this article is "You know how you can really help someone struggling in mental health" by Matt Connor, and this is on RelevantMagazine.com. I know that a great many of those teetering on the edge between this life and the next are unlikely to dial those 11 digits or get dressed to go to that group that meets in the church basement. What they need is someone who will roll up their sleeves and enter into the void for them. Someone who can bring that outside perspective into what feels like a bottomless pit. So even just being present with someone and giving them a different perspective on their life, on their circumstances, and being a connection and a friend to them can go a long way toward helping their mental health, and especially with preventing suicide. How do you know if someone's struggling with mental illness that they don't tell you, if they don't share that? Well, you might notice that a person seems very sad or withdrawn for more than two weeks. So this isn't just a temporary funk. This isn't just a bad day or a mood swing. Um, This is a Persistent, pervasive sadness and withdrawal over, you know, more than two weeks. Um, someone obviously, if they try to harm or end their life, that's a big red flag, obviously. Or if they're just making plans to do so, if they're just talking and thinking about how to do so, that's something to be taken very seriously. Um, severe, out of control, risk-taking behavior that could cause harm to oneself or to others. A sudden, overwhelming fear for no reason. Uh, sometimes, maybe with a racing heart, physical discomfort, or difficulty breathing. You know, so for for a really no reason or irrational reason, someone is having a panic attack. Um, they're just debilitatingly afraid of something that could be a sign of a mental health issue, um, and not just you know a temporary thing, but something that you, know, you need to enter into and be present for and walk through with someone. Um, or just really significant weight loss or weight gain. That could reveal something going on mentally because people are coping by eating more than they should or um, eating a lot of sweets and sugar or maybe they're unable to eat um, because of whatever stress or mental health is weighing them down. Um, Obviously, hallucinations are a big sign of mental illness, but so too are excessive use of alcohol or drugs. Um, Actually, I I should probably pause because this is a Christian podcast and I'm talking to Christians. Um, We believe that visions can happen, that people can hear the voice of God, that they can see things that aren't there in a physical sense or a natural sense. You know, we believe in visions and the supernatural. Um, So I think it's worth maybe pausing on that. As Christians, you know, we can't and shouldn't discount that. But I do think we need to hold those kinds of things up to a rigorous standard of proof. (laughs) So for example, you know, there's this um, Christian podcaster and author named Science Mike. um, That's his nickname anyway, Science Mike. And he claims he heard Jesus speak to him. Then he went and got a CAT scan and MRI and confirmed he did not have a brain tumor. (laughs) So that's a good example of confirming, you know, holding that vision, that supernatural perception to a rigorous standard of proof. Um, But also what Jesus said to him fit Jesus's character. You know, if someone is like, is not holding their visions or their um, hearing to a rigorous standard of proof, or if what they claim they're seeing or hearing does not fit Jesus and God's nature, we need to take that, I think, as a sign of mental illness. Um, Self-medicating with alcohol or drugs or food or TV or whatever it is can be a sign of mental illness. Drastic changes in mood, behavior, personality, sleeping habits. You know, so not just, I'm in a bad mood today, but like, I don't recognize this person. Um, Extreme difficulty concentrating or staying still and intense worries or fears that get in the way of daily activity. You know, so like I'm afraid of heights, I still climbed up on the ropes course, you know, four stories in the air with my son and my spouse, Um, but an intense worry or fear where like I can't function, I can't do what I need to do on a daily basis, that's a different kind of thing and a sign of um, mental health or mental illness. Um, And we need to be especially careful to look for these signs in younger people. 50% 50% of lifetime illness begins by age 14. So if you are to experience a lifetime illness uh, or a mental health issue at some point in your life, you've got a 50% chance that some sign of it will show up by age 14. You have a 75% chance of it showing up by age 24. So we need to be especially careful in looking for noticing these signs Um, And I'm, I am very leery or wary of over diagnosing people, you know, but, uh, and so I think it's important to emphasize, we're not talking about typical, you know, teenage mood swings or behavior or moodiness. We're talking about extreme things, uh, drastic things that are persistent and pervasive and inhibit people's daily lives and functioning well-being. Their overall well-being. Um, you know, I get really stressed. I don't always manage my stress well um, and I probably need to learn better ways to manage my stress but overall I think I'm okay <laughs> um, and I think most people who know me would agree that overall most of the time I'm okay um, but if my stress was to prevent me from being able to uh, cope with life to manage my life if i came home and laid down in bed and cried every day because of my work stress and couldn't you know, interact with my wife and my child okay eric you need to go get some counseling some therapy maybe some medication you need to do some you know start ex- exercising more eating better sleeping better you need to do some stuff here let me enter into this with you let me walk through this with you, be present with you to provide this outside perspective and try to help you overcome these drastic issues that you're experiencing. Um, So I hope that this episode um, provides some good advice, good uh, details for uh, how to help create a welcoming, safe environment for mental health in your church or in your congregation or community, um, or even in your family. So just to recap and sum up, because I covered a lot of ground, um, mental health issues range on a spectrum from just, man, I'm so stressed, to I have schizophrenia, (laughs) you know, Um, and everything in between. And mental health issues are an epidemic before the pandemic even started and made it everything even worse. And it's especially prevalent among young people. And the signs of mental health illness tend to be very severe, drastic uh, persistent, pervasive disruptions to people's daily lives and their well being. Um, and uh, we're not immune to it as Christians. You can't pray mental illness away. You can't. You can't pray away a chemical imbalance that's causing depression or an anxiety disorder. Um, and you can't, uh, and in some cases, you know, faith may even make it more likely that you would experience stress or anxiety or fear guilt or remorse that affects your uh, overall well-being and your mental health. And so um, we can normalize talking about mental health and admitting when we're struggling with our mental health. We can provide resources for people and connect them to those resources. We can um, enter into those complicated situations, not as saviors, but as friends to try to be present and to provide perspective and walk through things with people. Um, and facilitate their efforts to get the help that they need. We can um, educate our congregations and train maybe uh, certain lay people or staff to be especially well equipped to deal with certain mental health challenges. Um, we can have you know mini conferences with Q and A with the conference with the congregation and with mental health professionals. We can form support groups, um, and when we enter into a mental health. It- illness, we then can try to get those people into those support groups and get them connected and plugged in to the resources that they need. Thank you as always for listening. God bless. And if you are struggling with mental health illness or mental health issues, um, please find someone who you trust whom you can confide in and who will enter into the situation with you and help you connect with the resources that